in this episode of Influencers, Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams and Level Up co-author Lara Hodgson. There has to be a reevaluation of what we can get from these small businesses, especially women-owned and minority businesses, meaning that not everything is a unicorn. If everything's a unicorn, there are no horses. So we've got to recognize that there are some thoroughbreds out there that just need some cultivation and access. We always ask ourselves, what is the systemic or infrastructural forces that are causing the problem to begin with? Because if we have the problem, there's a very good chance that others have it as well. As someone who grew up working poor, I, be- I am privileged to be in a place where I can claim success. And it's a success I didn't enjoy four years ago. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guests, plural, Stacey Abrams, Georgia gubernatorial candidate, co-founder of B2B Invoice Company, Now Account, and co-author of the new book, Leveling Up, and Lara Hodgson, co-founder and CEO of Now Account, and co-author of Leveling Up. Welcome, Stacey and Lara. Great to see you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Stacey, why don't I start with you? Most people know you as a politician and a voting rights advocate. In fact, you're running for governor right now. How did your career as an entrepreneur, though, emerge alongside your political work? And why release a book about it right now? My political work actually necessitated me becoming an entrepreneur. I was deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta, decided to throw my hat into the ring for a state legislative seat. And I decided it would be improper, although it wasn't illegal, to stay at the city as a lawyer while running to represent the community at the state level. And so I launched my consulting firm. I had one client, it was a steady client, but I learned after a year that you needed more than one client (laughs) to guarantee the longevity of your your business. And lucky for me, I'd met Laura Hodson. She and I met uh, through a leadership program and we decided to launch our infrastructure consulting firm, Insomnia, together. And so that was really my transition from reluctant entrepreneurship to full-on commitment to being responsible for my own paycheck. And just to follow up on that, we often talk about, Stacy whether CEOs should go into politics, but you're a politician who also runs a business. So I'll ask, do CEOs speak out enough about political issues and how should they draw the line as to what warrants speaking out? I believe it's important for us to understand that politics is about how we live our lives together. I've got a 15 year old niece and we were talking about the difference between the politics and the economy. Economy is how we spend our, how we make and spend our money. Politics is how we make and uh, spend our, our time and how we determine how we will live lives, our lives. And so it is disingenuous to think that you can separate economics from politics or that a CEO can separate her responsibility as a political leader from her responsibility as a as an economic leader. The challenge is determining which questions require your input, but also deciding when that input is necessary. And any good CEO knows that you don't have to micromanage your processes. If you're doing the right thing, if you're hiring the right people, most of it will get done. But when those questions become so large as to impact everyone or to impact your employees, or to have a seismic effect on your ability to continue operating your business, then absolutely you should be involved. 
And there are some conversations that are social in nature, others that are cultural, but those that are foundational, that cut across your ability to make good decisions, especially about how we live our lives, those are the moments where I think CEOs and other business leaders have a responsibility to step up and make their voices heard. And obviously those points are salient to some of the things that have been happening in your home state, and maybe we'll get back to those in a second. But I do want to turn over to Laura and ask you about Now Account, um, which you and Stacy co-founded. What is the company trying to do, and what have you learned about small business challenges in that process? Yes, Now Account grew out of a challenge that Stacy and I had with our former business. And as we were trying to grow that business, we discovered that it's, it's getting easier to start a company, but ever harder to scale a company. And more businesses grow out of business than go out of business. Because as you start to take on these larger and larger customers, they don't pay immediately upon receipt of your good or, biz, of your good or service. They will pay 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, even more later. And that creates an incredible burden on a small business that's trying to invest in growth. Having experienced that ourselves and looking at the existing solutions that were out there, not finding one that worked, we decided to create Now Account, which is a payment system that allows businesses to get paid immediately when they deliver their good or service instead of turning to loans or factoring or the more traditional financing type structures. Our goal in doing this is really to relieve small businesses of the burden of being the largest lender in the economy and allow them to use their own revenue, their own cash flow from operations to fuel their business, which in turn allows them to play the role that they are being asked to play, which is the engine of the U.S. economy. And Laura, I understand you were an aerospace engineer by training and so how did you two meet? And Stacey was a lawyer. So, but first of all, from you, Laura, how did you guys meet? Yes. Um, you know, I joke everyone when, when they work with me and know that I'm an aerospace engineer, the term always comes up. It's not rocket science. And I always respond, well, that's okay. We've got that covered just in case. Um, Stacy and I, as she mentioned, met through a program called Leadership Atlanta. And it was an incredible program. It is an incredible program that continues today, but it brings together current and future leaders from every corner of the of the community. And so I was coming more from the business side. Um, Stacy was coming from having worked, as she mentioned, with the city of Atlanta and then, you know, moving eventually into more of a of an elected role. And we were lucky enough to meet in a, in one of the first sessions um, we met because Stacy mentioned something that I had never heard another woman say. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I say that I have to meet this woman. And um, and I accosted her at the buffet line. <laughs> <laughs> that always works. Stacy, how do your different skill sets match or maybe you guys have the same skill sets? How do you work together? How does that happen? So I'm a tax attorney by training. I then developed an as a tax attorney, I specialized in real estate and bond law, as well as healthcare. And then at the city, my bailiwick expanded to cover the four largest user departments for the city of Atlanta, including public works, watershed, and again, more infrastructure. When Laura and I came together, Laura was the COO of a major real estate development firm. 
And what was always so interesting about our partnership is that our skills are complementary but not identical. I we we joke that I've developed a I've gotten a you know a degree in business working with her and she now knows more about law than she should. And part of our partnership has been driven by the fact that we are not identical, that we are politically different. Uh, we have the same value system, but we express them in different ways. And in business, what we have found is that our ability to operate has really leaned on Laura's background as a business leader, my background in law, but our ability to mesh those skills together. It also gives us the ability to issue spot in different ways. And what I think is the most dynamic part of our, our business partnership and our, our friendship is that we don't believe we have to be the person with the right answer. And I think beyond the skill set, it's the mindset that matters. And that's one of the reasons for Level Up. There's a mindset that comes into being when you are an entrepreneur, you feel that you have to be the solution to every problem. And what she and I rely on each other for is that we have to be able to identify the problems. We don't have to be the person who has the answer to it. And Laura, we our other sort of rapport is that Laura is yes, and I am but, meaning that Laura sees the problem. She's like, yes, we can do this. My responsibility is say, okay, but here's what we need to do. And that comes from the dynamism of her background and the more cautionary role that I've played as a tax attorney and in politics, where you have to be, we both take methodical approach, but we bring a different level of not optimism, but certainly aggression to what we do. And it's an okay thing to balance that out. And once we accepted that about one another, I think that's when our business partnership really flourished. All right, sounds very complimentary then. <laughs> Stacy, let me ask you about venture capital because in the book you wrote, venture capital is not a meritocracy. I, I guess you know we know that it favors white men, um, buzzy ideas. Uh, is venture capital broken? I think it's broken, but fixable. And part of the challenge is that the fix can't come from the people who broke it. We have this cyclical imagination where venture capital is often created by those who made their money from venture capital. So you, you invest in a buzzy tech startup, you, it, you find a unicorn and you thus are always looking for new unicorns. And it's the, it's the economic equivalent of if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And the challenge is we need a broader toolbox for our economy. And for the small businesses that need access to venture capital, we have to be willing to acknowledge that there are these other devices that are available and other ways to improve the world around us. And so, yes, venture capital is broken, but I do think that there are those out there who are doing their best to try to create fixes, but those fixes have to be scaled. And the real challenge is that the innovative solutions that we're seeing are actually only being promulgated by a small cadre of VC firms and those larger VC firms have to do more than pay lip service to investing. They've got to look beyond what they know and bring in people who understand that there is more to our economy and more opportunity that may be slower to yield, but will have the same overall economic impact. One more for Stacy before I go back to you, Laura. So I want to ask you about the federal government supporting small businesses. For instance, restaurants, uh, Congressman dragging his feet about putting more money into the restaurant revitalization fund. Should the government be making more money available for small businesses at this point? Yes. And going to your earlier question, it's once again, a challenge of imagination. Small businesses are not miniaturized versions of Fortune 500, Fortune 100. 
they receive their capital in a different way, they spend their capital differently. And many of the programs that we've seen, including the PPP program, misunderstands how the small business system ecosystem works. And Laura and I have built now account around that very issue. As the person in charge of accounts payable for our earlier businesses, I can tell you that the ability to convince a large customer to send you their, their money is almost impossible. But the same is true of getting a large bank to loan you money. When the cost of doing a bank application is $5,000, whether you're a small business or a large business, their utility is best spent on that large business, which means that small businesses aren't getting access to the resources. And the regulatory schemes that are put in place to ensure against risk and fraud often cripple the ability of small businesses to even enter the conversation. The best small business program that we have seen was actually the Small Business Jobs Act done in 2010 because it was designed especially and specifically for small businesses. I understand the urgency of responding to the pandemic and the fact that the federal government responded under both recent administrations by taking what they knew and trying to scale it down. But we have now reached a place where we know the pandemic is shifting to endemic, but the economic crisis is also remaining. And so we have to have an economic program that actually looks at the needs of small businesses, is scaled for small business, and has a regulatory scheme that protects both the federal government's investment, but also protects the ability of small businesses to access those dollars and to deploy those dollars effectively. Lara, over to you. Other problems vexing businesses right now, inflation and labor shortages hitting Fortune 500 companies, but small businesses as well. And I want to ask you how they're struggling with it. Does this risk uh, putting, uh, potentially put them out of business if they can't compete with the price flexibility and scale of larger competitors? Absolutely. And, you know, I think we all know that small businesses have borne uh, a disproportionate amount of pain coming through the pandemic. And as we move into, as Stacey said, more this endemic stage, but it's a perfect example. We have a client that came to us Um, minority women in business that's in an industry where she's very often in competitive bid situations with much larger companies, Um, those competitors can always outprice her because they can afford to be more aggressive in their pricing to get these large contracts. One of the things she did was use Now Account to offer extended terms, knowing that she was going to get paid immediately, which her competitors could not do. And so what she did that was so inventive is she changed the game. Instead of trying to compete on a fraction of a penny per gallon of, of fuel that she was delivering, she instead started to compete on the terms that she could offer. And so I think that's what's important. And it goes back to what Stacy said is understanding the true underlying economics and cash flow of how small businesses work and solving the problem by leveraging what works for them, as opposed to forcing on them historic solutions that have worked for much larger companies, but don't work at a smaller scale. Hmm. All right, Laura, another one for you. Uh, Does remote work make it easier or harder for small businesses to recruit and afford talented employees? So advice for small businesses trying to transition back to the office, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, we're going through it right now ourselves as we've transitioned back to the office and are still transitioning in many ways. 
Um, you know, if you think about it, small businesses have always had to be creative in terms of attracting talent. Uh, we don't attract talent by necessarily paying more money because we don't have it. But we've always attracted talent by offering things like, you know, better work environment or better work-life balance or, um, you know, better lifestyle type um, amenities. And that gets more difficult when you don't have that balance between an office environment and a home environment. And I think we're finding most people enjoy this concept of hybrid but I will say it is much harder for a small business to scale when you don't have some ability for people to come together and collaborate because so much of what drives small businesses is the innovation and the, the development of new ideas. And I think you can do your job well remotely, but it's hard to improve your job well remotely because you need that interaction with other people. Yeah, we're finding that to be such a mixed bag, aren't we all? Yes. Um, Stacy, over to you, because in the book, you criticize um, something that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I find particularly interesting, that's the role of big tech and how they play in terms of shaping small businesses. And Facebook, of course, really holds himself up as a champion of small business. But you write companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon can control how small firms and creators reach customers in the new algorithm-powered world of targeted consumer advertising. So I wonder just how bad you think these companies are. Are there any positives? Um, and then how should we think about them in terms of the regulatory environment? I, I think the critique is not good or bad, it's awareness. Hmm. One of the challenges is that Facebook is doing things that are helpful to small businesses, but they're also doing things that if you aren't invested in the small business dynamic every day, you don't understand the consequences. And that's just true of any scheme that is larger than the small business, whether, and it, this applies to big tech, it applies to big finance, anything that is large that is trying, that impacts small, large is always going to have an outsized effect. And what we wanted to really raise awareness of with that critique is that there has to be an intentionality of scale. For small businesses to scale up, large companies have to scale down. They have to understand how these these points of entry work for small businesses. And when the cost is too high, when the, when the ability to engage is too complicated, small businesses lose out. And we've got to remember, most small businesses aren't the 500 you know, employee business that is still technically considered a small business by the SBA. It's the five person, the 15 person, the 29 person. And we have to be able to leverage every single mechanism so that they can participate effectively in that part of the economy. And so when it comes to advertising, if the algorithm is always going to privilege the larger, better financed company, then the small business is never going to be able to move forward. The same thing is true with access to capital. And so what we don't want, the, the takeaway isn't that big tech or big finance is wrong, it's that they've got to rethink how they reach those small businesses. The same thing is true for government. When your solution is to miniaturize a macro solution without understanding the very real and organic differences that exist for small businesses, you're going to be successful in some ways, but you're going to miss the mark by and large. And what we are arguing is that small businesses need an intentional solution that begins small and grows with them, not something that starts big and tries to fit them in if they can. 
Then how do you tell, how do you convince a JP Morgan, a Goldman Sachs, a Facebook, a Google that this is a business opportunity for them? Because, well, you know, they scale down. I understand that to try to make, you know, one size fits all. It's just smaller. But you're saying they need a special, um, you know, intentional roadmap or business model to actually help these companies. Right. And is that an opportunity for them? It absolutely is an opportunity. And I think you begin by writing a book about the issue. Part of the challenge is simply knowledge for a lot of and Laura has said this many times. There are very few CEOs that started as a small business owner. And that's not a bad thing, but what it means is that you come in with a very different set of dynamics. And I keep using that word, but but the way we think about and the way we order our information is based on what we know. Laura, our, our partnership has been built on the fact that we know different things. And the challenge for big businesses is trying to reach small businesses, and I think legitimately help them, has to be grounded in actually understanding them from the ground up, not from the top down. And so, yes, I'm not asking, I, I am saying that people need to think about it differently. I'm not saying JP Morgan has to reorganize their entire business model, but when they're going to tackle small businesses, when, and let's put JP Morgan, they're doing good. They want to do better, but when they want to do better, it's always better to start at a point of entry that actually understands this massive economic opportunity. And that's the, the bottom line. The numbers are staggering. What small businesses bring to the economy is absolutely essential. And if we leverage it, and if we level them up, they have the ability to actually create returns on investment that would rival what these large companies are used to seeing. I applaud those, those large companies that are doing their best to reach out. But what we're saying is let's reevaluate and reexamine how you get there. And if you're reaching as many as you can. And one more for you, Stacey, the book touches on some of the problems faced by women and entrepreneurs of color from launch to growth. So what are the biggest barriers that hold back diverse founders and what should be done about it? The first is access. Very few actually know where to go to get the money. And if you know where to go, you don't necessarily know the code word to get inside. And so the first is access. Uh, the second is expectation. If you are a man, if you're a white guy, you can fail several times and come back and say, let me try again. But if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, and if you're a woman of color, you're, you get basically one strike and you're out. And so expectations have to be, there has to be level setting of expectations because small businesses make mistakes. They stumble, they do not succeed. Laura and I had a business that succeeded and then we let it go out of business, a business that failed because we couldn't grow it. And then a third business that is doing exceptionally well. But under the rubric that currently exists, after our second failure, we would be out of jobs. We have to change the expectations and right size them. And then the third is that there has to be a reevaluation of what we can get from these small businesses, especially women-owned and minority businesses, meaning that not everything is a unicorn. If everything's a unicorn, there are no horses. So we've got to recognize that there are some thoroughbreds out there that just need some cultivation and access. And we have to reevaluate what that looks like in terms of the right investment. There, I want to ask you kind of a similar question. I mean, what do you see people doing right and wrong when it comes to starting their own businesses? And, and how has that environment changed, say, over the past 10 years? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that we as a um, sort of as a society, we focus on the startup phase. Um, we, we glorify it. We have television shows about it. And so I think what people have become better at is how to actually 
get a business started. Um, and there's lots of services out there that are fantastic to help, you know, folks who want to perhaps start a business, understand how to write a business plan, understand how to, you know, figure out product market fit, kind of, you know, do the research. I think what we need to focus on next is that scaling phase. Because on one hand, as we come through the pandemic, you would say it's encouraging to see the number of businesses that are getting started. Now, some of those are from people who are, you know, have always dreamed of starting a business and others are probably reluctant entrepreneurs like Stacy and I were who found themselves without, you know, without a steady income. What's interesting though, is that beneath what looks like an encouraging number is actually a growing entrepreneurship crisis in this country because the vast majority of those businesses are not likely to ever create jobs hire more people and, and scale. So, so in essence, what looks like a company being started is a job being started. And when the person working that job finishes, that company will go away. And that can be a crisis for, for our economy. So I think we need to focus on the, the tools and the support systems to help companies get beyond the startup phase and scale. And I think one of the things that Stacy and I, you know, perhaps it's kind of the unique way that we both look at things from different perspectives, but we both have a very infrastructural mindset. Um, and what I mean by that is when we face a problem where many would just solve the point problem in front of them, we always ask ourselves, what is the systemic or infrastructural forces that are causing the problem to begin with? Because if we have the problem, there's a very good chance that others have it as well. And we have a responsibility not only to solve it for ourselves, but to solve it for those that come behind us. And I think that if more people kind of looked at that infrastructural um, ecosystem, then we can create the changes that are needed to help more businesses scale up. Got it. Stacy. I told you I wanted to come back and maybe ask you some questions about politics in the state, and I'd love to be able to do that now. So if a business in Georgia came to you and asked you your advice about the best way to protest the state's new voting law, um, what would you say? Would you ever tell them to consider leaving the state? How, do you, how would you respond? I've written about it. I have talked about it. I have echoed it several times. I believe you stay and fight for what you believe in. I think that as a Southerner, I understand the salience and effectiveness of boycotts, but economic boycotts in the 21st century have a very different dynamic. And where we are is truly a conversation about what happens in this country. And so I believe that the work that has to be done in states like Georgia and other states that are promulgating these laws is that we have to stay and articulate why our democracy has to work no matter where we are. And let's remember, this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that when you break democracy for anyone, you break it for everyone. And we've already seen the early effects of this. We have to be willing to demand change where we are especially for those that are more vulnerable because they don't have the luxury of leaving. And so my belief is always that you stay and fight. And to Laura's point, the infrastructure that we need to build can be built right here in Georgia. And that's where I want us to start. What are your priorities right now, Stacey, when it comes to governing Georgia? If you were governor, what, what do you hope to accomplish? Why are you running? The, my, I'm running because I want there to be one Georgia with a singular belief that everyone is entitled to opportunity. 
as a small business owner who grew up working poor, uh, Laura and I both come from economic backgrounds that don't predict that this is where we're going to be. My background is slightly different than hers, but as someone who grew up working poor, I I am privileged to be in a place where I can claim success. And it's a success I didn't enjoy four years ago. It's certainly a success I didn't enjoy a decade ago. And that ability to be successful should be something that is accessible to every Georgian. And right now it's not. Right now, your zip code matters, your background matters, your access to power matters. And unfortunately, that's the, the type of leadership we have, one that cherry picks success. Instead, we have to do three things. One, and first and foremost, is expanding Medicaid is the single largest economic driver that can change the future of the state. We're talking billions of dollars to not only increase access to healthcare, which is important in a state that is losing hospitals in the midst of the pandemic, but it creates 60,000 new jobs, gives half a million people access to healthcare insurance, which means they're gonna stay at work longer. And it increases the investment in property values in rural and urban communities, meaning we're lifting the entire state. Number two, fully funding education, not as a gimmick, but as a means of ensuring that our children have the education they need. And three, really focusing on our small businesses, doing more than paying lip service to small business, but instead targeting programs that ensure that access to capital, access to training and access to commerce is made available to our small businesses with intentionality and with geographic diversity, because we cannot focus everything on Atlanta. It's more than half of our state's population, but it is not more than half of our state's opportunity. And we have to be willing to look at the entire state and invest everywhere. And where do things stand in your mind right now with, with COVID, COVID restrictions, mass requirements? What do you think, Stacey? You know, we are transitioning from pandemic to endemic. And the most important, and I would say uh, egalitarian thing is to follow the science. We need to make certain that we are doing what the science says we should do. Georgia is one of the lower vaccination rate states in the nation, which means we cannot operate as though we have already achieved the metrics that some other states have achieved. We have some of the highest infection rates, and that means we have to be very intentional about when we relax our, our mandates and that we have to have plans. And right now, the challenge is not simply the lack of a plan. It's the announced intention of the governor not to create legislative plans. And so my concern is that inaction is almost as dangerous. We need to make certain that people, that leaders at the state level, at the school level, at the leadership levels of our municipal governments, that they have good access to information, but that they also have good leadership that says, here's the rubric you use to determine your plans, and here's what we recommend. And unfortunately, that has not always been a consistent behavior in this, this current administration. All right, I'd like to ask both of you, um, two questions to kind of wrap things up here. Uh, first of all, would it be helpful if more uh, politicians in Washington were small business people? And then what do you see as your legacy? First of all, Laura, by the way, you say you have different politics. Does, do does Stacy have your vote here with this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. What about uh, the small business uh, owners being politicians in your legacy though? So I, I would say it would be fantastic if more small business owners were also active in political you know, areas, whether it's local, state, national. And the reason I say that is that small businesses have never had a voice. 
If you think about it, almost every program that's ever been designed to help small businesses, it's been designed by people who likely were never in or around a small business because that's not the career path that gets you into those roles. And so small businesses are used to being talked at, not with. And I think if more small business owners, um, you know, also played a role in helping shape policy, then perhaps we could actually have a voice at the table as opposed to being the, the object of whom the voice is speaking to. Okay. And Stacy, over to you. What do you think um, is your legacy at this point? And, and how are you thinking about that? Uh, at 48, I'm hoping I don't have a legacy yet, but... What I hope the longevity of this conversation will be is one that we see small businesses as their own driver of economic success and of community success Two, that the systemic solutions that Laura and I offer both through the businesses we've started and the policies we recommend that those really take root. And then three, that our ability to work together despite differences, our ability to navigate tough challenges, and our ability to succeed when failure seemed absolutely obvious, that that serves as an inspiration. And if those can be our legacies, then I think we've done a good job. Stacey Abrams and Laura Hodgson, co-authors of the new book, Leveling Up, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surworth.